rock and our Redeemer. Amen. A few years ago, I was invited to be a guest speaker at a church in a place that I will not mention. I will not tell you the state nor the church. But as I arrived that morning, there were a group of men standing out front of the church having a smoke. I introduced myself as the guest preacher of that day, and we talked a bit. And finally, one of them looked at his watch and threw down his cigarette and stamped it out and said, Well, I guess we better get inside and get this over with. Now, have you ever heard that kind of attitude when it comes to church, or maybe even seen it, or maybe even practiced it yourself? Now, I have to tell you that in my many years of ministry, I have uh, been in a few of, let's get this over with, church services. You can kind of sense it in the people, and you can sense it in the leadership. It's the kind of voices that you hear in the back of your head that say, oh, no, it's Sunday. Or, oh, no, it's a communion Sunday. Oh, no, they're going to recognize seniors or eighth graders. I mean, oh, man. It's kind of depressing to be in that kind of a worship service, particularly when our aim ought to be the opposite. We ought to be a mission-possible church, a church that is not characterized with a let's get this over with, but is characterized by saying, boy, oh, boy, it's Sunday. Now, a lot of people say, thank God it's Friday, but I would say, thank God it's Sunday. I get to come to worship one more time. I'm here today, and I want to see what the Holy Spirit is going to be up to. See, when you visit churches like that, it's what I sometimes call an indefinable something, even before the service begins. It's an attitude of anticipation. People are really excited about being there. They know they're there to worship God together. And they know that right away that this is going to be really good. It's an attitude of purpose. They actually know why they are there. And it's not just to put in their hour of time once a week. It's an attitude of reverence. They come in and they take the whole worship experience very seriously. I love being in churches like that with that kind of attitude. I call it that indefinable something, but you know, it's not really indefinable. Uh, We can define it and we can actually prepare for it. And we can be part of it right here every week. Today we're going to take a look at Pentecost. That's why I wore my Pentecost tie. It would have been hidden under robes. That's why I don't wear them. But the story is found in Acts chapter 2, and I'm assuming that because you are Missouri Synod Lutherans, you all have your Bibles, so open them up to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to take a look at it. This is the opening day, if you will, of the New Testament church. It's the last phase of human history that has been going on now for about 2,000 plus years. How much longer it's going to last, we don't know. It's really not up for us to speculate on that. But on the day of Pentecost, uh, it represents God's mission on earth, uh, that he will use his people to be a witness for Jesus the Christ. And these followers of Jesus... His church are to go out into the world to preach the gospel, to make disciples, and to change lives. As you look at Acts chapter 2, and you've heard most of it read already today, uh, it's kind of a microcosm of the church's mission. And in this chapter, I want to suggest to you that there are probably three key objectives that we as a church, and not speaking just about Redeemer, but the church in general, If we want to be a mission-possible church, should follow. Now, here is objective number one. We need to be a church that demonstrates God's power 
to make a difference in people's lives. See, Pentecost was a, a really big feast that was held in Jerusalem every year. There were thousands upon thousands of people that came from all over the known world. There were Jews, there were Gentile converts to Judaism. Uh, they participated in this great celebration. But there, while this was happening the very first time in Jesus' day, in Jerusalem, in the upper room, there was a gathering of Jesus' disciples. These were uh, remnants of followers. They were waiting in prayer. There were about 120 of them. They were sitting there and they were waiting because Jesus had told them to wait. It, after all, right after ascension, he had said to them in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then he added one of my favorite passages of all, in the entire Bible in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, and then you will what? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so here the disciples waited. They knew something big was about to happen. And on the day of Pentecost, when these 120 or so disciples were all gathered together, suddenly you have that big sound of a rushing wind. And suddenly there were tongues of fire that appeared on the tops of their head. And they began to speak in languages that they had never spoken before. And they spilled out of that room, out into the streets, and people that were gathered from all of those places that our reader had to stagger through before about Pamphylia and Phrygia and all those places like that, they all understood the message in their own language. And they all said, this is amazing. I mean, how is it that we can hear the message in our own language when these guys are just a bunch of backwoods hillbillies from up there north? And they ask a question that we can only hope people will ask about us about you individually, about us as a church, they ask, in effect, how is this possible? How is it that each of us hears in our own native language? Now, there's only one explanation. It was the miraculous power of God. Now, because they were speaking in tongues, sometimes people get all sidetracked in Acts chapter 2, but that's not what this sermon is about. I'll save that for Pastor Sippy. He can preach to you about speaking in tongues some Sunday. I'll recommend that to him. Rather, we're going to talk this morning about the power of God moving in people's lives in such a way that people stop them. They stop you. They stop this church. And they can't help but ask, how can it be? How is this possible? Now, I've been a pastor for about 35 years, and I've heard a lot of how is this possible. So let me give you an example of some I've heard over the years. How is it possible that you have so much joy in your life? How is it possible that you were able to survive such a tragedy? How is it possible that you have been so blessed financially? How is it possible that your marriage is so strong after so many years? I mean, how is it possible that you were to handle your battle with cancer with such grace and dignity? How is it possible that you changed, that you turned your whole life around? How is it possible that you have so much love for other people, even people that don't particularly care for you? Well, the answer to these questions is the same answer that you would have found on the day of Pentecost. It's simply this. It is the wonder-working power of God. 
That's the only way you can explain it. The wonder-working power of God. And I would pray that all of us would, would have this deep desire to want to be a part of a church or a gathering of people where people see the difference that God makes in our lives and in the lives of our church. And friends, there's only one way that happens. And that is when a church and its people are open and yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit. See, God wants to do something in your life. He doesn't want you just to come and park and plop in a pew. He wants to use you. He wants to use your life. He wants to use this church so that it causes the people in this world to sit up and take notice and ask questions like, how can this possibly be? How is it possible your life is like this? How is it possible that your church is like this? My daughter works for one of the top five accounting firms in the world. And uh, a lady came up to her cubicle one day and she said, Terry, can I ask you a question? She said, sure. She said, how is it that you always smile all the time and are always so happy no matter what's going on in this company? And Terry said, well, come in here and let me tell you. And she told her about Jesus in her life. And guess what? That person did not know who Jesus was. But by her sharing it and by living an example where people would ask, ultimately that lady and her children and her husband were all baptized. See, one of the key objectives is to be open to the power of God among us so that we can let our little light shine to this entire world around us so people can see the difference that God actually makes in us and that God can make in the life of a church. Now, here's objective number two. We need to be a church that helps make the connection between the meaning of life's events and the meaning of the biblical narrative. See, while the disciples were talking to everybody else in in many different languages, a lot of people mocked them. They thought they were a bunch of drunk guys. But even Peter goes back and tells them, you know, know, I guess they thought they were so drunk that they actually used an interesting question. They asked, what does this mean? So... I'm assuming there were Lutherans in that crowd that day. But in verses 14 to 16, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. said, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, it's interesting, a lot of people will read the scripture today and won't have the vaguest idea what the prophet Joel even said. That's why Peter talked a little bit about it. He began to quote from the Old Testament about how in the last days, God was going to pour out his spirit on all people, men, women, young, old. He reminded them that the prophet Joel had promised that everyone who called on the name of the Lord would be saved. And then he told them about Jesus, and he talked about his life and his death, and and how the words of even King David attested to his lordship. And then he told them all about the resurrection, and how this Jewish rabbi was now sitting at the very right hand of God, and, and, and has poured out his spirit on all of us, he said, today. And it's this miracle that you're witnessing, because God made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. Now, when those Jewish listeners heard what Peter was preaching that day, they understood exactly what he was talking about. Why? Because they understood the entire biblical narrative to that point in time. He connected the truth of that biblical narrative to the truth about Jesus and explained to them what it meant for them that day. I don't know about you, but I get pretty excited about the Word of God. 
I mean, the word of God has power to help people make sense out of what's going on in their lives. And the more you understand the word of God, the more you understand life. That's why we need to help people make a daily connection to God's word and to the entire biblical narrative. Don't be like the person I met not long ago uh, who told me what she believed. And I said, you know, that's not really true because in the Old Testament it says so and so. And she says, oh, I don't bother with the Old Testament. I'm a New Testament sort of person. Well, guess what, folks? There's a lot of stuff going on in the New Testament that if you don't understand the Old Testament, you will not even begin to understand the New Testament. You will not understand the book of Revelation unless you read Ezekiel and Daniel. You will never understand the book of Hebrews unless you go back and you read, oh, I hate to say this, but read the book of Lamentations and read the book of all of those things about all of the the, uh, sacrifices in the Old Testament. Paul put it this way when he was writing to a young man named Timothy. He said, all scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, the Bible gives you direction in the choices you make in this life, the decisions you make, it helps you get past the mistakes you make, and it helps you define your goals and priorities to live each and every day, and it works. That's why one of the messages I like to share with a lot of people is that a church that preaches and teaches the word and lives the word builds disciples with staying power in the Christian life. Over the years, I've seen a lot of people who kind of joined the church in kind of a big flash of fire. And within about two months, they've just kind of burned out and they've kind of drifted away. At the same time, I've seen other people come in with this big burst of energy and they've joined the church and they've stuck to it. And they're still going. Why? Because they are still getting rooted in the word. From that very first day that the church was in existence, the message was, this is how God's word applies and relates to what is happening to you right now. See, today, friends, we need to be the kind of teaching church that makes that same connection. The goal of all of my preaching and teaching for almost 50 years altogether, is the practical application of biblical truth. And so we need to be a church. We need to be a group of people that helps people connect to this life-changing principles of Scripture. That leads me to my third objective. Objective number three, we need to be a church that is ready to help people take the journey of faith. After Peter preached, something pretty spectacular happened. The crowd asked yet another rather significant question. In verse 37, they said, brothers, what shall we do? Now, you can probably tell by that question, that must have been a pretty good sermon that Peter preached. Usually when a pastor finishes preaching, uh, very seldom do people all stand up and shout back at him, oh, what shall we do? Usually they look at their watches and say, if we hurry, we can beat the Baptist to the buffet. Or maybe in Springfield, the assemblies. (laughs) What shall we do, they wanted to know. What would you say if somebody said to you, you know, you're obviously a Christian. I mean, I'd like to, you know, what, what should I do? Well, let me call the pastor. He'll explain it to you. No, you ought to be able to do it yourself. Even today, people ask all the time, what shall I do? I mean, they know something is missing in their lives. 
They're not connected to God, and they, and they, they want to be. They were created with this God-shaped piece missing. Uh, they've seen how it can make the difference in the lives of other people. Uh, they've heard the promises of the Bible uh, about the life of joy and victory. And now they want to know, what must I do to have this right relationship with God? And Peter was loaded and ready because in verse 38, he gave them the answer. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus the Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Peter said, it's time for you to change your mind, and it's time for you to change your direction. Give your heart fully to Jesus. Make a public declaration of your faith in Him through the sacrament of holy baptism. And your sins will be washed away, and you will experience the same power of God that you've seen at work here today. Friends, our mission... Your mission, individual, as collectively as a church, is to bring people to Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about it. To tell them how to be saved, how their lives can be made brand new, and our job then is to give them a home where they can continue to be discipled and nurtured in the faith. For 16 years now, I've been teaching at the largest maximum security prison in America, Angola Penitentiary in Angola, Louisiana. I've been privileged to teach these men, many of them who've graduated, believe it or not, with a seminary degree while in prison from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. I help them with their continuing education, and generally I preach at the services every night. Let me tell you about one service a few years ago that taught me and taught them a big lesson about discipleship. When I had finished preaching, the pastor at that church, one of the inmates, issued an altar call, something that's generally rather unfamiliar to Lutherans. Uh, we're not too keen on expressing our faith. We sometimes smile real loud, but uh, walking forward doesn't seem like anything we'd want to do. Walking out is what we're more interested in doing when service is over. But he had this wonderful altar call, and suddenly there were like 12 men who came forward and stood at the altar to receive Jesus Christ for the very first time. And everybody there clapped. It's a wonderful thing to see 12 people walk forward and actually receive Jesus for the very first time. And the pastor said, thank you. Let's all give him a big hand. And isn't this wonderful? And I thought it was. And then he told him, now you can go back and be seated. And for some reason, I stood up. And I said, Brother Ron, could I speak just one more time? And he said, sure. And I said, I'd like to have these 12 men come back up to the altar. And I said, what bothers me is here are 12 brothers who are new to the faith. And there's not a single one of you standing behind them who will promise to walk with them now and disciple them further in the faith. Anytime you bring in new members, there ought to be people standing behind them who promise to be there with them. And not just expect your pastor to do it. Or your DCEs or whatever. And slowly but surely, men began to come out of their fellowship until there were four or five men who stood behind each man. And they prayed and they promised that they would take them into God's word. That they would see to it that they came to the worships and the fellowships each and every week. Those men were on the path to discipleship. And that church learned something about discipling people into it as well. See, that day when Peter preached... 3,000 people were saved. When was the last time that happened at Redeemer? 
Hasn't happened in a lot of churches, believe it or not. Some people went back home, and hopefully they shared the gospel. Some stayed in Jerusalem. But what did they do? Well, what they did was to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. In other words, they got on this path of discipleship. They put themselves in a position where they could continue to learn all about the biblical narrative and who Jesus was and what Jesus can do, what Jesus means in their life. And what happened? Acts chapter 2, 43 to 47 tells us, Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I love this picture of the New Testament church, a community of people discovering the reality of life together in God. See, that's what the church was intended to be, and that that is why we need to be committed to helping people discover this new life that we have enjoyed for so many years, to help bring in more and make them fully devoted followers of Christ. My prayer for this congregation My prayer for any place I would preach, my prayer for myself, my prayer for you individually, is that you would all want to be that kind of person or that kind of church that causes other people to be utterly amazed, asking, how can it be that your life is so different? My prayer is that all of us would want to be the kind of people that who answer the question, what does this mean with the powerful, life-changing truth of God's word? And my prayer is that all of us would want to be the kind of church that when people ask, what shall we do, we're ready to respond, come to Jesus, give him your life, and join us in this journey of faith. Acts chapter 2 is a phenomenal chapter of the Bible. It's the microcosm of the mission of the church. It begins with these simple words, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Today's the day of Pentecost. Happy birthday. We're all together in one place. We, too, need to put our trust only in God, relying completely on him to do greater things than we could ever ask for or imagine. Let's be faithful to pray, faithful to give, faithful to follow, faithful to obey, faithful to go where he leads. If we will do what we have been asked to do, God will do everything we cannot do. He will send the Holy Spirit to move among us. So let's welcome his presence so that we can experience the winds of change. May God bless us in that pursuit in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we continue our worship as we gather together our tithes and our offerings.